So next week we will conclude uh, the Gospel of John series after 43 weeks. So this is our 42nd week in this series through the Gospel of John. I appreciate you and your patience and with me as we've made our way through the Gospel of John. If you want to take out your Bibles right now, we're going to be in chapter 20. I wanted to just take a moment to say once again thank you to Brother Larry Bailey who every week has faithfully provided those companion articles on the back of your outline in your program. Uh, if you're a, program, uh, a writing person, you can take notes. Uh, if you're a reading person, I encourage you to read Larry's companion article each week that he uh, so expertly puts together. Um, today our message is in, entitled, Reactions to the Resurrected Lord. We looked at the resurrection last week. Now we're talking about some of the reactions to the resurrected Lord. But I want to start talking about Elvis Presley. Good old Elvis. Elvis used to frequent Lil Thompson's Steakhouse in Tennessee. He was good friends with the owner who used to give him free food long before he was famous. Well, one night when he was at the height of his fame, Lil and her Steakhouse held what they called the ultimate Elvis Presley impersonator contest. And a large crowd arrived for this event, including Elvis Presley himself. Elvis decided to take part. And so he snuck through a back door and sat in the back. And Elvis said to some of his entourage confidently, I'm going to mash this thing. Well, Lil was worried that the place would go crazy when everyone realized that the real Elvis was there in her restaurant. Well, there was no need for worry. Elvis got up when it was his turn and he sang, Love Me Tender. And at the end, there was some polite applause. And Elvis came in third place. <laughs> Believe that? You see, the judges missed the real thing, right? He was standing in front of them. And friends, so can we. So can we. We may think that Jesus is a prophet or a teacher, a miracle worker. He was the rock star of his era. But we can still think all that and just dismiss him. Miss him. But he is the real thing, the Son of God, the Savior, and our Lord. You know, we all, we all have dreams, right? Dreams maybe that haven't come true. We find ourselves in places sometimes that we never expected to be. We, don't, we, we, we know, we definitely don't, don't we, that how it feels to, to, to be disappointed or discouraged. Maybe even to feel like all hope is gone. Have you ever had any of those, those thoughts? And if it's not true for you right now, it's probably true for someone that you know. And it may be true for somebody that you love. Well, our scripture passage today begins in that kind of dark place. We're going to begin by looking at a woman by the name of Mary of Magdala. And she is grieving the loss of her rabbi, her teacher, her Lord. And her grief is so great that, like those Elvis judges... She nearly missed the real thing. 
while he was standing right in front of her. But instead, instead, Jesus leads her toward the light, towards peace, towards certainty. And so let's begin our journey there this morning in that dark place, and we're going to see if Scripture can lead us to a, a place of brightness, a place of hope. Whereas as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at John chapter 20. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 10. And you know, the Gospel of John offers us some detail and richness to the resurrection story that the other Gospels leave out. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us what happened. But John, his goal is to teach us how to live in the light of what happened. He's not just interested in the facts but what we do with the facts. Well, as we, as we read uh, and talked about last week, Mary had already made one trip to the tomb on that morning when she and the other women found it empty. Much to their shock and surprise, they hurried back and they shared the news with the disciples, two of whom, we remember Peter and our author, our eyewitness, John himself, they ran out to see for themselves. Now Mary followed them out back again to the tomb. But by the time she arrived, the guys had already turned to go back home, which left Mary alone at the open tomb. It's emptiness staring her in the face. And she did the only thing left to do. She cried. She cried. Who doesn't cry at a grave? Well, let's just take a moment to think about who is this Mary of Magdala? Now, there's all kinds of legends that have arisen about her through the years. There's a tradition that goes clear back to the 8th century that identifies her as the prostitute that Luke writes about in Luke chapter 7 who anointed Jesus with her tears. But there, there's nothing in Scripture to support that idea. Some of you are old enough to remember back to the 1970s. Remember the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar? And it portrayed Mary of Magdala as a sensuous woman, torn between religious devotion and romantic attraction. She sang, I don't know how to love him. Just uh, not very many years ago, according to a popular novel, The Da Vinci Code, Mary became Jesus' wife, the mother of his child and the leader of the church after his death. Now, none of these portrayals have any biblical or historical support. What we are told is what we're interested in. What we are told is that Mary was one of several women who became followers of Jesus and helped to support him in his ministry over those three and a half years. We're also told in Luke's gospel that Jesus delivered her from seven demons. Now we have no idea what that possession looked like in Mary's case, but we know from other biblical accounts about demon possession that demons could cause people to cut themselves, to throw themselves into fire, to lose control of their behavior and their emotions in wild and terrible ways. In the first century, people were often locked up typically or just turned out into the streets to live on their own with no support at all. And so whatever her past had been, 
Jesus, with a word, had delivered her from it. Set her free from the dark forces and she found life again. A life that was centered on Jesus. Well, let's begin today in our scripture passage by reading together the words of John chapter 20, verses 11 through 13. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Amen. The word of God. Well, what I want us to see in this section of scripture, as we think about the reactions to the resurrection, the first reaction we see is Mary moving from grief to hope. From grief to hope. Jesus is suddenly, tragically, seemingly gone. Why are you crying? The angelic figures ask. It it probably sounded to Mary like the most ridiculous question in the world. Why shouldn't she be crying? Jesus was gone. And so she says, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've taken him to, where they've put him. But I want you to notice how she speaks of him. As a person, still, not they've taken his body away, but they have taken my Lord away. Her teacher, her savior, the one who had given her life back. After years of torment, she had begun to dream again of good things for herself and her people. But like that, life had killed that dream. A Roman cross had seen to that. And so what now? Would the terrors come back again in her life? Would the demons that had been there before and haunted her return? What would she do? Who would she be? What did the future hold without Jesus? She might as well... uh, 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 she could have just said to, to, to those angels, they've, they've taken my hope away and I don't know where they've put it. Hope, right? That's our theme today, hope. What is hope anyway? Wishful thinking? Naive optimism? Hope it doesn't rain. Sorry, it's raining, isn't it? Oh, I, I hope the economy bounces back. Oh, I I hope the sermon doesn't go too long today. That is wishful thinking. Yeah. You know, the dictionary defines hope as a desire with the expectation of fulfillment. So hope begins with a desire for something good. But then it adds the element of expectation, of confidence. Without the expectation... Hope is nothing more than a wish. And wishes don't often come true. Wishes really are reserved for fairy tales. But when we truly hope for something, in a way we're counting on it. But but hope is more than a word or a word study. Hope is to our spirit 
what oxygen is to our body. Without it, we will die. You know, when a team loses hope, the game is over. When investors lose hope, the stock market tumbles. When a, when a patient loses hope, death could be crouching at the door. All of which is to say that Mary had no reason, really, to hope that morning. There was no wishful thinking, no naive optimism. She, she expected nothing more than a corpse, badly in need of spices. That's why she had come there. Remember, she's already been to this tomb once. She's already heard an angel say, he has risen, but she's not buying it. She watched him die. She saw him laid to rest. And as far as she's concerned, it's over. The empty tomb did not speak to her of resurrection, not by a long shot. So she did what we all do at a fresh grave. She wept. She wept because there was nothing else to do. Mary had no reason to hope that morning until until she sensed someone standing there. She turned to see who, and that someone asked her a question. Let's pick up our reading in verse 14. Having said this, Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Amen. God's word. She didn't recognize him at first. Maybe it was because of the tears. Maybe it was the dim light of the early morning. But most likely it was the fact that his appearance had changed in some way, as we see from other gospel accounts. Mary's not the only one that didn't initially recognize the risen Lord. Woman, why are you crying? There it is, that question a second time. First from the angels, but now from Jesus. And I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus' first words after his resurrection were in the form of a question. In all of the Gospels, we see him meet people where they are. And he asks questions, and he listens, and he understands, and he gives people the time. And here he does the same thing as he teaches us how to share hope. And it turns out that we don't share hope by hitting people over the head with it, right? Notice Jesus doesn't say to Mary, ta-da, it's me, Jesus. That'd be kind of scary, wouldn't it? He doesn't say, Stop crying, woman. Everything's just fine. No. And he certainly doesn't scold her for her lack of faith. He meets her where she is, in her place of grief, and he asks her to tell him about it. And he listens as she explains once again. By the way, have you ever noticed how grieving people often need to talk about what has happened. Sometimes they need to talk about it again and again. I think that's what Mary's doing here. And maybe there's a lesson here for us. For those of us who want to share hope with people. And the lesson is this. Don't rush to good news. When someone is hurting, 
or discouraged or grieving. They don't need happy talk, right? And they certainly don't need our religious cliches. Everything happens for a reason. Don't ever say that. Oh, they're in a better place. Don't say that. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Don't ever say that. You see, grief is real, right? Grief is a part of this life. Loss is painful. Bad things are hard to endure. Unemployment stinks. Relationships can break your heart. Illness can be overwhelming. And we need to say so. And we need to feel it. And so if someone in your world is hurting, if you want to share hope with them, the best thing to do is to meet them in that moment, like Jesus does. Ask them to tell you about it. And then sit still and shut up and just learn to listen. See, that's what Jesus does for Mary. But then, when she's ready, he gently and very personally reveals himself to her. Let's read the next couple of verses, beginning in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Amen. The words of Jesus. Mary. One word. That's all he says. But there was something about perhaps the tone of his voice. Something about the mention of her name that suddenly opened her eyes, opened her heart. It was him. Rabboni, she cries out, a special intimate term of affectionate respect. He is her rabbi, her leader. And suddenly, Mary has a reason to believe, to move from grief to hope. And notice that it was not enough for Mary to simply confront the evidence of the resurrection, right? She'd seen it, the empty tomb, an angel's announcement. But that wasn't enough to convince her. She needed something more. Something more personal than that. A real encounter with Jesus. And friends, we need the same thing. Those of us who struggle, perhaps, with the resurrection, we need evidence. And there's plenty of it. An empty tomb, written records, both biblical and non-biblical, the transformation of the disciples, the emergence of a brand new people of faith that spread all over the world in a very fast fashion, the great divide in human history, B.C., A.D., the changed lives of people you know. These are all evidences, the power of the resurrection. But we also perhaps need something personal, something experiential. That's what the Lord offers to Mary that morning, right there at the tomb. And suddenly, he's there. More real, more powerful, more glorious than she has ever known him to be. And because of that, she has hope. 
Jesus was not only there with her, he had proven that he was stronger than death, stronger than evil, stronger than all the bad things that can happen in this world. Jesus is more powerful. Now she must have thrown her arms around him at that point or taken hold of his feet or, or something because Jesus says, and in the original language, it's, it's very stark and, and very clear. He says, stop clinging to me. Stop clinging to me. He's telling her that he's still going to be with her, with all of them, but not in the way that he was before. He's going to return to the Father. And he's going to send his spirit to be with them, to be in them, always, everywhere. And that promise was not just for them, but it is for us as well. And by the way, he still has work for Mary to do. Do you notice that? A message to share. More life-changing, more earth-shaking than Mary had ever imagined. Go and tell, he says. Go tell my brothers. Go tell the world. Death is defeated. I am risen. And that's exactly what she does. In verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. And then he has said these things to her. You see, hope is not a what or a when or a why. Hope is a who. Things don't get better just because we want them to. They get better because somebody does something. And real hope, true hope, is always embodied in a person. Think about our world. You know, shareholders hope that the, the CEO can turn the company around. Citizens hope that a, a new leader can get their country back on track. Beaver fans hope that a, a new coach can can drag their team out of the doldrums. Duck fans hope that their coach can one day figure out how to beat the Huskies, right? Is it too soon for that? Maybe. Yeah. But you see, hope is a who. Somebody wise enough, strong enough, good enough to get us to a better place. And Jesus Christ is that someone. His resurrection proves that he is stronger than any setback, any failure, any loss, any disappointment, any attack that comes in the night. If life has a way of killing our dreams, then Jesus has a way of bringing them back to life. Now I want to be clear that we're not saying that we always get what we want, right? Christianity is not a, a name it and a claim it. It's not a vending machine. It's not a, a genie in a bottle that we get wishes from. It's not every bad thing will magically be undone. That's just not how life works. But it is to say that God can and God will do something good with our future. That is his promise, his guarantee for his children. I mean, Mary didn't get exactly what she wanted, did she? Jesus wasn't going any longer to be with her in the way that he had been. But he was going to be with her in ways that she never even dreamed were possible. 
there was still a lot she didn't understand. And she didn't know exactly what the future held. But she knew that it would be good now that Christ had risen. Mary moved from grief to hope. And friends, so can we. So can we. Well, now let's briefly consider another uh, reaction to the resurrection. Not only from grief to hope, but secondly, from fear to joy. Let's read this next section together. John 20, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Amen. God's word. An El Dorado Hills, California family recently overcame their own emotional turmoil when they turned a canceled wedding into a special event for approximately 150 less fortunate people. David Duane said that his 27-year-old daughter, Quinn, announced that the groom had called off the wedding just five days before the event. The reception venue, the Citizen Hotel in downtown Sacramento had been booked for months in advance. Now, Mr. Duane said he and his wife knew that they certainly couldn't expect a refund at such a late date. And so we said, do, do we just not do anything? Or do we try to do something? And what might that something be in our time of grief and sadness? Well, his wife, Carrie, came up with the idea of hosting people who were homeless or in need at what was intended to be a lavish wedding dinner. And so she contacted a local organization whose mission is to provide shelter and other services to help people transition out of homelessness. And then the, the organization took charge and invited people, individuals and families, provided transportation and bus passes so that they all could get to the dinner, Mr. Duane said. And so David Duane and his wife Carrie and his daughter Quinn were on hand at 5 p.m., to welcome people to the wonderful dinner that would otherwise have been served to the wedding guests. And Mr. Duane says it, it turned out to be a fabulous night, a great evening. Live music from the wedding band played and David and Carrie and Quinn mingled with the guests and listen to some of their stories of the difficulty that they had faced in their lives. 
The wedding costs, Mr. Duane said, totaled more than $30,000. And as a family, he said, we took away something good from what was a great disappointment and a personal deep heartache for our family. Out of heartache came goodness. Well, you know, there are all kinds of things in this world that can bring about fear. Is that right? Or disappointment. Or heartache. We don't have to look far. The question is, friends, not how do we get rid or avoid hurt and fear, but how do we live through it? How do we overcome it? How can we, like Jesus' early disciples, or like this broken-hearted family, how can we move from fear to joy? From fear to joy. And the answer is, and it sounds very simplistic, but in reality, it is the greatest power we have. The answer is, look for Jesus. Look for Jesus. Look for Jesus in the midst of your pain. Look for Jesus in your disappointments. In our heartaches, we can look for Jesus. And yes, even when we fear for our lives. Did you see that in the text? On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They feared for their lives. They thought they might be next to be on a cross. They feared for their families. They feared for their well-being. And all of that, all of that was great fear. And all that stood between them and that fear was a locked door. But a locked door didn't stop Jesus, did it? And so Jesus came and stood among them. Can you imagine that? You're hiding. The blinds are pulled shut. The doors are locked. You're talking in hushed voices. And suddenly, the Lord is there. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. When you are scared, when you are confused, when you don't know what to do next, listen for Jesus. Can you hear him? Peace be with you. It's so important that he says it twice. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands, his side. Then the disciples were glad. Glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Even so I am sending you. Peace be with you. And they were glad. Do you see it? They moved immediately, immediately from fear, overwhelming fear to great joy. Friends, the peace of Jesus Christ is real. And it is powerful. And it is for you and for me today. If we listen, Jesus will show up. And we will hear, peace be with you. From grief to hope, from fear to joy. And then finally, number three, from doubt to certainty. From doubt to certainty. You know, we live in a culture that today says, seeing is believing, right? 
Seeing is believing. That, that means people need evidence to prove the existing existence and prove it to me. Prove it to me, we say. In our court system, right? Evidence produced can convict a person of a crime. And lack of evidence can cause the case to be dismissed. Evidence gives us eyes to see the truth of something, which then leads us to believe. But you see, in Christianity, there's a twist. Instead of saying, seeing is believing, we can say, believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. And that runs counter to our culture, right? But it is a part of the foundation of our faith. Now, I'm not saying that having faith in Christ is a blind faith. It is certainly one where the evidence in favor of the resurrection events are staggering, as recorded in Scripture. If you take the Scriptures alone, there's no way we can conclude that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And yet, we're called to more than just evidence. Now, Thomas happens to be one of the more well-known disciples. And not for a good reason, right? We've come to know him as what? Doubting Thomas. How would you like to be known as that? Your first name is a, a negative connotation. Thomas, the disciple who doubted. I think it's safe to say from our text that Thomas didn't just doubt the resurrection. He didn't believe it. He did not believe it. And you know, this is an event that many people in our world today still struggle to believe. You will meet people, you may know people who say, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. It's a fairy tale. It's made up. Pie in the sky. Let's face it, no one in our world today has ever seen a person who has died come alive three days later, right? If we had, we'd probably be a little freaked out, right? I would. And that's the reality of the disciples. Three days after his death, he appears and begins to interact with them. That is not normal, right? It's not normal. But Jesus is the one who operates according to his plan, not our plan. Even when his plan is far from our normal. I don't know, it makes sense. I don't understand it. It's okay. Because it's Jesus' plan. And we're just going to stick with it. The peace that he brings us is a peace, the scriptures say, is beyond our own understanding. The joy that he brings to us is a joy that scriptures say is unspeakable and full of glory. So, so great we can't even talk about it. His plan is far from our normal. Well, the Gospel of John records this interaction between Jesus and Thomas. So let's read John's eyewitness record of this encounter. Verses 24 through 28. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, 
his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Amen. The word of God. Wow. Not only is there some repeating there, but some interesting stuff. Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas had the awesome privilege of physically seeing the risen Lord. And of course, he moves immediately, doesn't he? From doubt to certainty. From unbelief to belief, just as Jesus commanded. Now, friends, we don't have that same privilege today. We just don't. And I even wonder if people today, if they did see the resurrected Christ, how many people would question whether it was really him or not? But you know what? The pages of scripture and the accounts like Thomas's are not simply placed in the Bible for a good storytelling. They are present to give us the evidence we need to have today so that we can proclaim this singular truth. Jesus is alive. Well, after some reflection, the conversation continues with Jesus making a a very significant and powerful point. This is a dramatic moment for Thomas. He had lost faith in the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Maybe it was because Jesus didn't fulfill the, the political duties that, uh, as king that Thomas hoped for. Maybe it was because things didn't work out exactly the way Thomas expected that they should. And so Thomas struggled to believe. But when Jesus showed up for Thomas, Thomas makes that emphatic proclamation. My Lord and my God. And this is an all-encompassing statement that confirms the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. It's a powerful affirmation concerning just the true nature of Christ. He is God in the flesh. And yet Jesus takes this amazing interaction and affirmation and somehow he takes it even deeper because he's the Lord, right? Jesus affirms that Thomas makes this statement, but only after physically seeing Jesus. But I want us to look at verse 29. Verse 29, Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You see, Thomas was guilty of needing to see before he would believe. And Jesus takes this moment and he turns it upside down, out of the normal, and he makes that statement, blessed are those who have not seen but believe. That word blessed, in the original language, it's emphatic. It's like we'd say it's super emphasized. So it's like he's saying, Super blessed, extra blessed. It's blessing supersized. 
super blessed are those who believe without seeing. And friends, I think Jesus speaks here of everyone who will put their faith in him without physically seeing him. And guess what? That's us. It's absolutely us. And we, when we put on the eyes of faith, we understand that believing gives us eyes to see. Because we believe without physically seeing, we too are especially blessed. And so in this life, we can find joy and beauty and forgiveness and healing and purpose and restoration and the reality of God's presence in our everyday lives. We can live in hope and joy and certainty. Because friends, the Christian life is so much more than just wishful thinking. It is confident living. It's facing the future, knowing that God can and then he will do something good for us in this life and especially in the life to come as we wait in hope. Let's pray together. Father God, we, we are aware that, Lord, without hope we have nothing. Lord, it, we just look around our world and we see the hopelessness and the despair and the brokenness and the anger and the resentment and the rebellion and the fighting and the warring. And Father, we see it all. And Lord, we know that it's because people live without hope. Father, thank you for providing the way of hope. And more importantly, Father, thank you for providing the person of hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be comforted, may we be affirmed, may we live in confidence as we walk the path of hope, looking for you, listening for your voice that says, peace be with you. May we hear that voice today and throughout this week as we follow in obedience. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, each week we conclude by letting you know that some of our elders are available to pray with and for you. I don't know where you perhaps are in your journey of hope or your desire for peace in the midst of a crazy world. But I want you to know that we have people that will pray with and for you, crying out to hear the voice of Jesus. So as we sing this song in just a few moments, I just encourage you to make your way back to the prayer corner. I see that Dick and Julie Beswick are there. They would be so pleased and blessed to pray with and for you. If they're busy, then some of our elders, other elders will step up and, and uh, join you as well. So I just encourage you to Take advantage of that blessed opportunity. Let's stand together.